Do you like to learn about random wild stuff? You know, the things you didn't think you needed to know about, then realize you should? Then welcome to Nothing Off Limits, the podcast that gives you one place to go for something different. Impress your next party guest with your unusual body of knowledge. And if you dig the show, get more information at ladyfoxentertainment.com and subscribe, rate, or review. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Nothing Off Limits. You know, when I reached out to today's guest, she replied quickly and with open arms because today's topic is a taboo one that is rarely discussed but needs to be. It's incest. You've seen it in pop culture, Game of Thrones, Flowers in the Attic, and maybe some less known yet what may be considered disturbing films like Gemini's. It's often referred to as the silent crime. One out of three girls and one out of six boys will have been abused sexually by their 18th birthday. Today we're going to find out why. And if this has happened to you, you're going to get information and resources on things that you can do to manage your trauma. Our awesome guest is Dr. Leslie Beth Wish. Dr. Wish is an award-winning licensed clinical psychotherapist and author, nationally honored for her pioneering research about women, trauma, love, and career. She says she does the research and writing about issues that stay in her mind and bother her until she can understand them and help others. The National Association of Social Workers has placed her on their list of the top 50 who have contributed to the profession. And she is also the subject of biographical entry in many of the marquee who's who publications for her pioneering work with women, career, and trauma. Her work as the clinical director of the New England Institute of Family Relations, the first sexual dysfunction clinic in New England, and her research-based book, Incest, Work, and Women, earned her national esteem as a pioneer in sexual dysfunction and women's love and career issues. She is quoted widely in national magazines such as Shape and Self and on websites such as Bustle.com. She appears regularly on This Week in America and is a feature writer for DigitalRomanceInc.com and PersonalGrowth.com. Her website has been named as one of the top 101 websites to watch, and so I encourage you to go there. It is LoveVictory.com. Welcome, Dr. Wish. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for having the bravery to address this topic. It's very important, and as you said, rarely talked about. Yeah. You know, I did a post on Facebook seeking guests for this, and I had a bunch of people unfollow my page. (laughs) So I found that to be kind of interesting. Oh, my goodness. I never even thought of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely taboo. People don't want to talk about it. And I want to get into that a little bit later. But first, I want to start by hearing more about you and what What drew you to studying psychotherapy and trauma in particular? Well, it's easier for me to talk about trauma because that that goes hand in hand with helping people. I grew up part of my life on a barrier island off the coast of Charleston, South Carolina. I spent almost every summer there, spring vacation, even those little vacations like, you know, Flag Day and President's Day. And I mean, every chance. My mother was from Charleston, South Carolina, and she would just grab my brother and me, throw us in the back seat, and drive, you know, overnight to Charleston from Ohio. So I really grew up part of my life there, and it really feels like home. And one of the things that happens on a barrier island on the ocean is that there are storms. And off the coast of Charleston, we had hurricanes. So after the hurricane would pass and we were fine, I was always struck, even as a little girl, by the observation that Mrs. Green's roof would throw, you know, shingles everywhere and cave into the house. 
house and, and, you know, create all kinds of holes through the house and rain and animals would get in. And she had an optimistic attitude. Not only optimistic, but let's get going. I'll call this person. We'll get it fixed. We're safe. No one's harmed. And that's most important. And I thought that was incredible. But then down the street from her would be um, Mrs. Blue, who would have some you know, driveway upheavals and cracks in the sidewalk around her home, and she just went cuckoo. I thought she was just going to lose it, crying and screaming. And I thought, <laughs> isn't that interesting that mm. the person with all the damage should be calm and organized, and the person with very little should be really, you know, uh, mm. making a scene, as my mother used to say. So that got me interested in how people react to bad things. And so I think that's where my trauma interest got started. Wow, that's really cool. Well, what about the, the sexual trauma piece of it? Because I know that you became became an expert in that area as well. That was another surprise. I've always been interested in why so many women have difficulties with their career or getting even career-oriented. So when I lived in the Boston area, I did numerous workshops on getting unstuck in your career, how to find out what you need, getting rid of what gets in the way. I did these all over the, the Boston area, and I worked a lot with Radcliffe College at their career center offering these workshops. So one day, I had a bad experience giving a workshop, and it might be something that your listeners can relate to. If you've ever given a talk or a presentation or a lecture of some kind, and about oh, a quarter or a third of the way through, you say to yourself, I'm not reaching these people. And it's a terrible feeling, at least for me it is, not because of anything I feel about myself, but I, I sense that I'm missing something. I'm not doing something or connecting somewhere that helps them. Mm -hmm. So I took a quicker break and I went up to some of the women who were sitting in the workshop with their arms folded across their chest, which is a big signal mm -hmm. that, you know, goodbye, lady, I'm tuning out to you. <laughs> so I went up to them and I said, please help me help you. I'm, I'm sensing that I'm missing something. And that's when there was silence for longer than I felt comfortable with, and I just waited. And a woman finally said, I want you to know that 19 of us in this workshop of 42 people, 19 of us are in an incest survivor group, and you're not reaching us. And that's when a light bulb went off in my head. I, I regrouped. I made sure that everyone had a chance to tell their story without having to expose themselves. They could write it, you know, privately and have someone else read it. You know, I really was very conscious of protecting their past. So after the workshop was over, I went to the library, looked up career, work problems, and sexual survivor, trauma, and I found one small book that was more of a general book, a very good one, but general. So I decided, at this point, I was in graduate school finishing my doctorate, I decided that that's what I would write my dissertation on, that I would find out what the connection was between childhood sexual trauma, particularly incest, and career development, wow. and that's how I got interested. How prevalent is incest? It's about one in three or one in four women have been sexually abused by a, 
um, usually uh, either an outside person or a family member, but certainly by the age of 18. It doesn't break down into whether it was a family member or a stranger, but about, you know, and again, these statistics vary because you have to understand this goes unreported. You know, even when people go to the emergency room showing that they've been you know, abused, and the only person in the house is their father, brother, or uncle, or whatever, sometimes the mother. And the trauma um, person on staff, the nurse or the physician, says, you've been sexually traumatized. They say, no, I haven't. No, I haven't. No, that's not true. So a lot of this goes unreported. So it's very difficult to get clear numbers, but it mm. could be about one in, um, I think it's four in 25 women have been sexually abused probably by a family member, but we don't know. We don't wow. know. Why are people not coming forward? Why do they say no when they're asked? Lots of reasons, and these are the top ones. The first and most powerful one is the sense that if you were to tell the truth, it would break up the family. Because the hope is that the non-abusing parent would come to your aid and jettison the abusing parent or uncle or father or grandfather. In truth, that often doesn't happen. The child is not believed. So that's the second reason. Who is going to believe me? Whom in the family can I trust to believe me and come to my defense? Wow. That would be really scary if you went to your mom, you're a young child, and you go to your mom or you go to your dad, and they say, no, that's not happening. Go go back to your room or whatever. Why would a parent react in that way? Why would there be denial? Well, it's for the preservation of the family and marital unit. Just think about it for a moment. For the sake of telling a, a story that, really that happens bothers often. Me. Yeah, that bothers me. Yeah, bothers me too. Like for any, th- any other problem that would come up, a parent would sit with their child and try to figure it out, right? If they're a good parent. If it's not about something that carries so much power that it could destroy a family. You know, when you look at families and you read about them or see them on Dateline or 48 Hours or the news, you hear that, um, you know, someone embezzled money or lied, but those things don't tend to break up the family. It's so hard to believe that you didn't know it was happening. So what is a, a partner or a spouse supposed to do when they hear that their partner or father or grandfather or live-in uncle or whatever has abused their child sexually? If they face it and if they deal with it, they're going to have to do any or all of the following. Get divorced, separate, take off with the children to protect them, accuse their, their partner or their father or other relative who might also be the main or only source of income. Mm. So think about that. Right. Think what's at stake. Your income, your safety, and in many instances, particularly in high-income partners and marriages where this happens, your sense of embarrassment and shame. Wow. There is a lot of power associated with it then in that way. But it does suck that this would be ignored, something that's this powerful, but yet something like gambling or drinking too much alcohol, like dad coming home, passing out on the couch, is is looked past. And there are some differences in how people react to sexual abuse versus physical abuse. Somehow, it doesn't feel so horrible. I mean, all they all feel horrible. I don't want to say that they don't. But it in my 30 plus years of doing this, it seems 
it has seemed easier for many of my clients to say, so-and-so beat me and I finally had enough of it, as opposed to for the past, you know, 10 years of my life, um, my uncle or my grandfather or parent, you know, came into my bedroom and abused me physically. Wow. There's just more, more shame attached to it. It's very easy to say to yourself, well, you know, I wasn't beaten, my head wasn't split open, my jaw wasn't broken, you know, it, I, there's nothing that shows on the outside. So, you know, really, how bad could this be? What causes this? Where does this even begin? Is this a result of bad parenting? Why does it start? Oh, for so many reasons. And, and this is not in any particular order. There are no boundaries between parent and child. The parent feels that the child is his or hers for their own needs. So there are there isn't that parental boundary that so many families have in a good way. You know, you don't have sex in front of your children in most families. So p- parents know without it being written on the refrigerator, y- you don't do those kinds of things. But this boundary gets perforated and it gets crossed. The second thing is, and again, these are not in any order. I'm just giving you the top things. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a sense of ter- terrible loneliness, lack of sexual and emotional uh, um, connection in the family. And one of the parents or one of the you know family abusers didn't feel loved, affirmed, and or was also abused in their family. It's very common for abusers to abuse. And you'd think common sense would say, I'm not doing that to someone else. It happened to me and I didn't like it. But what often happens in these families, because no one blows the whistle on the behavior, the behavior of abuse becomes integrated into family life. It's one of the things that families do. It's not so unusual. It happened to me and I'm okay. So if I feel that that's where I get my solace, you know, with my, let's just use the father-daughter example, that I feel my solace and peace and calm and love from my daughter, well, I'm okay. And, and, you know, my mom did that to me or my father did that to me. So that's what begins to happen. It gets discounted. And why would someone who was abused discount it? That goes back to the power of breaking up the family. It goes back to the fear that, no one is going to believe you. So it gets to be a ballooning secret. Can it ever be stopped? It takes a lot of work, a lot of therapy, a lot of self-honesty, and most importantly, the ability to withstand emotional self-examination, which is what people are usually pretty weak in. Right. With sibling incest specifically, can you tell us more about why this would happen and at what age it normally occurs? Because we hear a lot about like mom, child, dad, child, or uncle, that kind of stuff. But what about siblings? Well, sibling sexual play has often been dismissed or minimized as, you know, that's just growing pains and that's childhood curiosity about life. And, you know, that's what children do sometimes. And, you know, particularly if kids are in the, sharing the same bedroom and they see themselves in the shower and out of the shower and things like that. Well, you know, that's just no big deal. You know, that's just exploratory. And that's how it seems. There's an article online that interviews the two actors in Game of Thrones, and um, the male actor who plays Jamie Lannister says, 
most people did get from this scene what we were trying to show. It was a very complicated relationship, two people in desperate need for each other. All of these emotions were going through them. It was never intended to be something where he forced it. It wasn't a rape, and it was never intended to be. But then everyone asks, how can you say it wasn't rape? So what is your feeling about that, about what the actor said and about the public's response to this scene in Game of Thrones. Think of the whole life of Game of Thrones. It's just a whole stress of life. Life is stress. And so when there's a lot of stress, when there's loneliness or isolation in a family or in a group, when you're all together, all all for one, a lot of families who live um, in sort of isolation from other families, Relying on your siblings seems safe. You know, it's like your buddy. If you don't have a pet, you kind of take each other on for comfort. Yeah, and that's fine in my mind because I was close with my siblings, but they felt like my friends. I never got sexual with my siblings. So how does that happen? How does it go into that land? I wish there were an easy answer that had a list that you go, yep, yep, no, no. But these are some of the main things. Okay, a past history of child abuse. Um, no parents around to guide you or weak parenting, no boundaries between the parent and, and the child, a lot of stress or violence in the family, poverty. Those are the kinds of things that make you overbond with someone. And, you know, physical contact, even with a sibling putting his arm around you or giving them a hug is very comforting. You know, think back when not too terribly long ago, and it still exists now, when little kids all slept in the same bed. Sometimes they slept with their parents. Yeah, but it wasn't sexualized. And so I think it changes once it goes into that realm. Yes, and that's the point I'm making. So just having physical proximity or contact with a sibling that's doesn't... normal affection. Yes, and, and if, if, even if you're sleeping in the same bed, think of the people who, you know, had one bedroom and, and that was not unusual at turn of the century that everybody slept in mm-hmm. the same bed. Mm-hmm. So what is it that turns it? What is it that crosses that boundary? And it usually has something to do with the family's values, the parent's history of whether they were abused, when there's no parent around for comfort, when you don't have anyone to say no for you and, and observe what's happening. Or, or maybe the parents are, maybe the parents themselves are overly sexualized. That's very true. And that all stems from childhood experiences, the environment of their family, what they learned. There are parents who um, have sex in front of their children. And so that sets a standard, a norm that happens in that family. So the best way to think about a family is to think of it as an independent country, an island country with its own rules. And so the rules can change from Mm. one island to another. But let's think about this for a second. How awful is it? Most cultures have a taboo against incest. And in 1937, when Japan um, invaded China, What they did in in the city of Nanking, in addition to slaughtering people, was horrible, their invasion. What they did as a final humiliation to the family, they made them all have sex with each other. Mm. So that is sort of like, you know, please, this is what we're really going to do to absolutely demoralize you. That's how powerful sexual relations that are incestuous in a family, that's how powerful they are. I don't want people to dismiss this and, and... you know, put it in the 
that gray area of, you know, well, it's not so bad. Right. It's a violation of your the boundaries of your body, the boundary of yourself, yes. the boundary of your limitations. What about the siblings who claim it's consensual? I did some research online, and there are people out there who it continues into adulthood. It's not something that can be shoved under the rug as a childhood exploration of some sort, but instead becomes a lifelong bonding. And some of them even actually want to get married. What do you have to say about consensual incest? I don't know how consensual it is. You know, that's in the person's, you know, secret thoughts. But let's assume that for the sake of argument that it is consensual. This is now something that gives them a great deal of comfort. It makes them feel special, connected, less alone, less stressed, or the other side of the coin is they don't feel it's consensual, but there's too much to risk. Maybe it's monetary, maybe it's public shame, maybe it's self-loathing, self-questioning, how could I have allowed this to happen? This is something that even if you were in therapy forever, or even if you wrote an autobiography about it, there are things that are left out. It's difficult for me to be neutral as an interviewer for this because I just really don't understand how you could be sexually attracted to your sibling or to your parents. It does happen, though. It, I mean, you know that it happens. You've heard stories about it. You've heard, you know, stars talk about it, biographies, autobiographies, yeah. and it, movies. It's there. Is this the phenomenon of GSA or genetic sexual attraction? Well, now that has to do with comfort zone, like-mindedness, feeling that someone gets you. And that's an assumption that's made. You know, how many siblings don't get along, okay? How, how many of them are, are at odds or, or feel very different? And in fact, in families, particularly where the siblings are same sex, there is greater differentiation in personality, their skills. And that seems to be something that could very well be hardwired into our genetic makeup. But when you have that comfort zone, someone gets me. Someone's been through the poverty or the um, horrible traumas that we've been through. Someone makes me feel heard and accepted. And it does risk getting sexualized. Not often. I don't want your listeners to think that this is very common, but it can. So at any point has a client come to you or a patient come to you and said, this has been going on for many, many years, you know, I'm well into, I don't know, my 30s, my 40s, and this still goes on. But I can't seem to meet anybody new. I can't seem to find somebody to settle down with, that kind of thing. Have you ever had somebody come to you and say, I don't know how to get out of this? Well, they had, didn't come with that as a presenting problem. I have had two people in their 20s and, and a person in their 30s. They initially came with, I've got a new job. I, I need to move away. It's the job I've always wanted, and I'm very um, conflicted about it. I feel really bad about leaving my brother or sister. And it takes a long time to get to what is it that you're worried about your brother or sister? And it usually comes in the form of, well, we live in the same house. He or she's dependent on my income. I'm really kind of worried about how they're going to make it. And then we begin talking about finances and, you know, practical things because I sense that there's something not being told. So I deliberately go, instead of, you know, digging, I deliberately go to something more comforting like, um, 
Could you help your partner, your sibling move? Could you help them find another place to live? Could you give them extra money for a while? Could they move with you to your new job? And in these cases that I just, stories that I just mentioned, finally what came out was, I don't know if I can leave. I I just don't know if I can leave because we're sexually involved and we have been since about the age of nine. Wow. So what do you do at that point? I mean, do you dive deeper and try to find out if this is actually a trauma factor or if you kind of blow past that because they don't seem like they're experiencing trauma? Or is it just buried so deep in their psyche and in their being that they don't even see it as trauma? At that point, my main goal is to make the person feel comfortable telling me these things. This is not easy to talk about. And, you know, I don't care how great your therapist is or your religious leader. There's that barrier. What are they going to think about me? What if they go too quickly and want me right away to, you know, break off the tie or call social services or pack my bags and move? It's too quick. And you have to assume that they're coming to see you because they're in some kind of turmoil. So the basic plan is to kind of listen to where I sense someone is and what their level of emotional bravery and comfort is. What can they handle? And so I usually ask them, what kinds of things do you not want me to say? And what kinds of things would you like me to help you with? Mm-hmm. You mentioned in in one of the patients who came to you that it started at the age of nine. So what are the signs that people should be looking for in a young child? Well, sometimes those signs aren't so um, signaling. That's the problem. Um, Does your child not want to do things with other children? Does your child um, have genital infections? That can happen too. Irritations. You can watch your child scratch themselves, have trouble going to the bathroom, you know, suddenly not want to, you know, get undressed in, when you, you're in the locker room with your mom and the two of you are there and you're so used to putting on your bathing suits together. I mean, little things that are out of the norm of your usual behavior with your child. Do they stop eating? Are they eating too much? Are they sulking? Do the grades go down in school? Mm-hmm. You know, those are the warning signs of any kind of problem, not just sexual. Do they not want to date when they get older? Do your children become promiscuous as they get older? Mm-hmm. These these are the things. Do they dress too sexually? Look at their friends. What kind of friends do they have? These are checklists for any kind of problem for a parent of a child to have. And bedwetting is something too, right? Bedwetting, um, setting fires, um, being cruel to animals, those are often signs of, well, on one side of the coin of, um, you know, future, you know, criminals. But on the other side of the coin, it's showing that there are emotional disturbances that right. don't reach the level of homicide. All right, God. So as people who are victims or survivors of incest get into adulthood, you mentioned that you worked a lot with women who are having stumbling blocks in their career. If you want to go into more detail about what the effects are on career, as well as other behaviors or problems that result in adulthood as a result of incest, that would be awesome. Well, let's start with some of the assumptions that are made with um, women who've been sexually abused and are um, 
I don't like to use the word promiscuous, are, are, are comfortable having sex or seemingly comfortable having sex with lots of different people, strangers, relationships, you know, it's, it just seems to be part of like saying, hello, I like you. And, mm. you know, and to, in today's world, you know, it used to be part of my life when I was growing up, the messages were, um, you don't even kiss someone on a first date. And then it got to, is it okay to have sex with someone on a first date? And now it's gotten to be, you don't even date. You can have just hookups. Mm-hmm. There's no dating. It's just <laughs> sex before any yeah. dating, you know. So when those kinds of things are floating in the culture, the barrier between you and someone else sexually gets weaker and weaker. And it gets harder and harder to say no. Mm-hmm. Because it, it feels out of the norm now, out of what's accepted. So let's talk about some of the effects sexually. It was um, one of the ideas floating out there when they were first looking at women who had very little desire or willingness or ability to say no to sex with someone. It was assumed that that was one of the ways the women could finally feel in charge. I'm in charge. Um, I'm going to agree to have sex with you, but it'll be on my terms. Mm -hmm. And so for the longest time, it was seen as a, you know, fairly botched attempt to take control of your life. You know, it's kind of backwards. You're still consenting and having sex very frequently, but now the belief was that the woman felt... I'm more in charge of it. The other side of that coin, though, of sexually abused boys and girls was that you aren't allowed to say no. So if you're on a date and the person says, would you like to come back to my place? And, you know, that phrase is often known to be something sexual might go on with Mm -hmm. a very good probability. Mm -hmm. The person said to herself or himself, I'm not allowed to say no. I'm not allowed to reject someone. I'm not allowed to say no and make that person feel unloved. And that's the message that gets Mm. sent in the family. If you want to feel loved, you've got to make me feel loved. Wow. What about the career piece of it? I'll just give you two of the extreme examples of what happens career-wise. The women um, and men who have been sexually abused career-wise often Um, become doers. They are their job. They are their work. You know, people who work 24-7, hardly sleep, the the, the headsets on their head when they go to bed at night. These are people who have to be doing. They have to be busy all the time. The downtime is scary. That might bring memories. When they go to sleep at night, they want to be just absolutely exhausted so they don't lie there and think. They also want to find something in their life that makes them feel in charge. And so it gets funneled into work. They become workers, beers, you know, doers, workers all the time. The other side of the coin are people who, at the extreme end, have trouble keeping jobs, have trouble finding a career path and go job to job. You know, a job is different than a career path, and they often can't get to a career path. They have trouble concentrating. They have trouble dealing with their emotional reactions. They might still need some anti-anxiety medication. So life feels extra challenging. So those are the extremes. And what I found in my research, in addition to the extremes, there were people who after a while could function at work, but they didn't feel comfortable around the people when, you know, like the people began sharing their personal stories and Mm -hmm. letting down their guard. Water cooler. 
Yes, and yeah, all that, and you know, family picnics. I mean, work picnics, and you know, you invite your family, and you don't want people to know about you, and how much should you disclose? So that discomfort disclosure level waterline rises, and they bolt from those jobs. Wow. So the long-term effects could be showing up in your career, uh, being promiscuous, or a general fear of getting emotionally intimate with other people, right? Yes. You know, some people can um, feel good about their sex life, but not their emotional life. They put the barrier not on the body, but on their heart and mind. What also can happen is that there's sexual dysfunction, inability to have an erection, um, inability to have an orgasm, so that there's an impairment. There's a wall that goes up that says, this is not my family member any longer, but I can put the wall up here. I can consent with my body, but I'm not consenting with pleasure. Wow. Also, I read online possible drug abuse, alcohol abuse, things of that sort. Is that right? Yes. The incident of um, suicide attempts, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, gambling, all, overeating, all those are very high. One of the things that is common amongst incest survivors is the self-injury, the cutting. Nothing fatal, nothing that has to go to the emergency room, but Mm -hmm. tiny little cuts, little injuries. And there are lots of reasons for that. The top ones are to feel alive, to feel something, because so many survivors are numb. They just go numb. They completely dissociate. Yes, and that's why there's no often no pleasure in sex, you know, in in terms of orgasm or tactile pleasure or joy in in any way, because you are numb. You just turned off. Wow. What about sexual identity crises? Do those occur meaning? Yes and no. I mean, you know, every person has their own unique details. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to say that's absolutely true for everyone or not true for anyone. It could be one of the many ways that Mm -hmm. someone deals with it. But for some women and for some men, it's um, I don't want to deal with anything that involves love or anything that involves um, traditional couples. Uh, I'll I'll be intimate sexually with my own sex, but n- not another one because that's too risky. That puts my heart and mind and all at risk. Mm-hmm. What about what about trust issues? You mentioned that there are survivors who are able to get control over the trauma and the feelings through a lot of work, have healthy relationships outside. Is that possible? And and what does it require to get over trust issues or getting close to someone? Yes, it's very possible, but it requires a lot of emotional bravery. You know, if I could give someone two gifts to make themselves happy and productive and to feel good about themselves, one is the ability to withstand emotional self-examination, which takes tremendous bravery. It's painful to look at your past. It's painful to look at where you've made bad decisions. And a lot of people avoid it, don't want to understand it, put blinders on, or self-medicate with drugs and alcohol and food and, and lots of sex to, you know, dull the senses. So that's the first thing, is a, a wonderful gift you can give yourself is just to get emotionally brave enough to withstand looking at yourself. Mm-hmm. And secondly, once you're able to do that, you can then build your ability to train and trust your intuitive judgment. What do you mean by that? Well, I was once asked on a radio show, if you could give women, because it was a show for women, one tip about how they could make smart decisions when they choose a love partner 
what came out of my mouth. Don't you love it when you didn't know you were thinking something and something just jumps out? Mm-hmm. I, I said, if you could really trust your intuition that the feelings you had, that this is the right thing to do, is the right thing to do, then you have a greater chance of making really wise choices. But what happens is our intuition is cultivated by our family environment. We tend to feel more comfortable with people who reproduce feelings in our family or our behavioral role in the family. These all form your, what I call your discomfort comfort zone or your comforting discomfort zone. At any point, you feel comfortable doing something that isn't healthy for you. But a lot of us fall into that trap. We For example, um, if you're the baby of the family, you might feel that it's more comfortable for you to continue being treated like the baby. And then in your relationships, you might choose someone who takes charge. And when you realize that this person who took charge is taking charge of you, you can't imagine how you got there because you felt so comfortable with this person. (laughs) You felt chemistry. So I like getting out of that whole concept of chemistry because healthy chemistry usually grows as opposed to glows. Hmm. So I like so, that. <laughs> so if, if, if you could really trust that you're making the right decisions, if you could trust that that comfort feeling of chemistry and doing the right thing and that this person is good for you, if you could know the difference between trusting the mistrustful chemistry and trusting your right intuitive signals, then you can make smarter decisions. But that takes self-examination psychologically. Yeah, it's a lot of work. How do you help those who are triggered on a regular basis? Because they have to see their family every weekend. That is so hard. Again, that goes back to what we talked about at the beginning. One of the best taboos, very effective taboo against blowing the whistle on the family is knowing that the family's going to break up or disown you. Mm-hmm. Any of those things can happen. So what do you do if you have to go back? And again, there is no prescription for that. I think it depends on your unique circumstances. Yeah. It just some sucks that some... Up. It just sucks that some parents, I'm sure that, you know, women's intuition, like the mom probably knows, but just is not saying anything. I'm really glad you said that because that is exactly where I wanted to go next. There is tremendous anger at the abusing family member, but there is resentment and anger at the parent or the uh, guardian in charge who did not protect you. Mm -hmm who might have known about it and did not protect you. So a lot of the women in my research whose uncle, stepfather, or father, or grandfather abused them, they were often very angry at their mothers and grandmothers Mm -hmm. because they sensed that that parent knew about what was going on and did not protect the child. How do you help somebody work through something like that, especially when they have to see this person all the time? Well, they have to decide if they want to work on it and whether they want to see that person or if they want to put a temporary hold on the family. There are all kinds of incremental steps before you get to that, you know, don't darken my doorway again position. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are things you can do. You can find a confidant in the family if that's possible or you can keep your distance never be alone with that person you establish the ground rules so if grandpa says come sit in the library I want to talk to you about some things and grandpa was the one who abused you you can say you know grandpa it's Christmas I want to be with everybody else you can take charge that way without having to be a whistleblower Mm -hmm. okay 
You know, I would imagine that there are some people out there who wonder if it could have happened to them. Maybe they don't have a specific clear memory of it, but they've thought about it. How do you work with people who may have that thought uh, to work it out? You want to seek a therapist who specializes in um, sexual, you know, family abuse, because they would then be able to know what kinds of questions to ask you, how to pace the therapy. Don't just go to someone who is, you know, says that they do everything. You really want to go to a specialist and you want to ask what their advanced training is. There's so much healing to be done into well into adulthood. Does this last a lifetime? Is this a lifetime of managing your trauma? I would say it's a lifetime of managing the leftover feelings because you're not always in trauma mode. Some of the um, issues that crop up is the shame, the fear that no one believes you. I've had family members um, of my clients say to them, oh, you know, Susie, you exaggerate. You always were a drama queen. And so it's coming to terms that there are lots of people who aren't ever going to believe you or at least believe enough of what you say. So the shame and the lack of family support is very powerful. The other things that happen, and this is what abuse and particularly sexual abuse does, but in both physical and sexual, you feel like a non-self, that you're invisible. It's been called soul murder, that no one's going to be there to rescue you and help you. You are all on your own. You are all by yourself. Mm. So these are some of the issues that are kind of, you know, long-term and need to be addressed. And do they all these things go away? No, they kind of be, go into dormancy and they can get activated, for example, if you go to a movie where it happens mm. or you hear on, you know, that that that's the thing for Dateline or 48 Hours or a star comes on and says, so-and-so did this to me. So they can go into dormancy, but they do have an ability to get activated and brought up to the surface pretty quickly. So what are some resources or places that people could go, besides obviously contacting you, for help? Well, find out in your area. You can go to... um, APA.org, which is the American Psychological Association, or NASW-DC.org, that's the National Association of Social Workers, and you can find a place on those websites that says find a therapist, you can put in your zip code, you can put in the issue that you're looking for help, you know, sexual abuse, and there will be therapists who have registered with those specialties that you can see. Also, in your community, there might be, um, they're called different things, Women's Resource Center, um, Sexual Abuse Center, Rape Crisis Center. Uh, find out what it is. You can also call the emergency room on a non-emergency phone at your local hospital and find out where can people go who've been physically or sexually abused mm-hmm. for help. And is, they will give you, you know, groups. Is it confidential? So that if you mentioned earlier that a lot of the incest survivors are really scared of blowing the whistle because they don't want to break up the family or they don't want somebody to, you know, get incarcerated or whatever may occur. Is it confidential? It should be. The only, it depends on the um, laws, the HIPAA laws. If that therapist thinks that you are currently in danger of being harmed or that you will harm someone else, there are various guidelines and all therapists should read you those rules as to what they're allowed to disclose or not. Okay. 
It has been such an honor to have you on the program. And for everybody out there listening, I'm going to provide links in the show notes, but please go to lovevictory.com if you'd like to reach out to Dr. Wish. And I know that you do a lot of other work as well, like intuitive work with women. And so maybe we can have you back and do another episode on a different topic. I would love to talk about intuition. That's my next project. Um, I'm at the tail end of developing workshops for that. So that would be of great interest because how to really fine-tune your love intuition is so important. It's a person's responsibility to work on that. Absolutely. And we all have it. So we should all be making full use of it. Thank you so much once again. Thank you for having me and for reaching out to me and finding me. I hope we were helpful to other people now. Me too. Have a great topic you'd like to hear discussed on an upcoming episode of Nothing Off Limits? Email us at ideas at ladyfoxentertainment.com. In the meantime, please subscribe, rate the show, and go to ladyfoxentertainment.com to sign up for our email list and to check out our resources page. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.